Evening, everybody. If you would like to, uh, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 2. 2 Samuel chapter 2. <clears throat> There's a story that spans between chapters 2 and 3, and I want to look at that story tonight. And I entitled this message, Man's Lie and God's Truth. And it's a very befitting title because that's what this story does. It contrasts two things, man's lie and God's truth. It exposes. It exposes the natural man, what he knows. Natural man is not completely ignorant of the things of God. He knows something of God, what he knows, what he wants, and what he does with that knowledge and that desire. It exposes man's religion, salvation by works, and where it leads, where it ends everybody up with, that follows that path. But finally, this, it exposes the truth. What is God's truth? What is the truth concerning himself, his son, and salvation? What is the truth? That is a marvelous question. It's all answered here in this story. Now, before we get into it, I'll give you a little background here. Saul, the former king of Israel, he is dead. He's gone. David has been anointed by God through Samuel to be the king over all Israel and all Judah. Both kingdoms, the entire kingdom, he's king over all of them. And David goes to the Lord. He says, should I go up to Judah? And he says, yeah, go. They're going to receive you. And so he goes to Judah. And David says, I'm your king. And everybody in Judah says, of course you are. We've always known that. And they receive him as their king. Israel, not so much. Israel's basically all the other tribes. Israel's commanded by a man named Abner. Abner is Saul's former second-in-command, the captain of his host. Now, I want you to see down here in verse 8 what Abner does. But Abner, the son of Ner, captain of Saul's host, took Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and brought him over to Manhanim. And listen to these words. This is very important. And made him king over Gilead, and over the Asherites, and over Jezreel, and over Ephraim, and over Benjamin, and over all Israel. Ishbosheth, Saul's son, was 40 years old when he began to reign over Israel, and reigned two years. But the house of Judah followed David. Now, under Saul's court, Abner had a position of power, prestige, and influence. He's a powerful man over there. He had Saul's ear. And this is the theme of Abner during this entire story. Abner desperately does not want David to be king. Why? Because he will lose control. Right now, for about five years, Abner has had control of Israel, and he desperately wants to keep on to that control. And truth be told, what Abner actually wants, he wants to be king. He wants to maintain the control that he has. That's not appropriate. No one would sign off on that. He doesn't have the right name. So he does the very next best thing. He installs a puppet king. He takes a man, Ishbosheth, Saul's son. He's got the right name. And what we'll read about this man as we go on, he's a weakling. He is absolutely terrified of Abner, and he won't do anything unless Abner gives him the go-ahead. This is the type of king that Abner wants. Abner made him a king, and if you have the power to make a king, you are the king yourself. Now, a contention boils over. The kingdom's divided. Everybody's on the brink of civil war. So the army of Abner goes down to the pool of Gibeon. 
The army of David commanded by Joab, they go to the pool. Let's see what happens. Look at verse 12. And Abner the son of Ner and the servants of Ishbosheth the son of Saul went out from Manhanam to Gibeon. And Joab the son of Zariah and the servants of David went out and met together by the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, the one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. Now it seems as if everybody's interested in negotiations up to this point. Nobody wants a civil war. Nobody wants to hack their countrymen to death. So Abner comes up with his army. Joab comes up with his army. And everybody sits down. Let's let cooler heads prevail. Let's have a conversation, see if we can work this out. They have this pool between them. There's a standoff distance there. Nobody can get heated and shove a sword in the stomach of the guy standing across from him and spark a battle. This is a very wise thing to do. But look at what Abner does here. Look at verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men now arise and play before us. And Joab said, let them arise. Then there arose and went over by number twelve of Benjamin, which pertained to Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. Now Abner proposes play here, but it is anything but child's play. What he is proposing here is gladiator-like combat. He is essentially saying, Joab, I'm going to send you my twelve best I'm going to send the best I have. Joab, you send your best, and we're going to have a little competition. We're going to see who has the stronger warriors, the more skilled warriors, who's better. Give us a little taste of what would happen if our two armies go to war. And Joab's in a tight spot. If he says no, Abner may take that as a sign of weakness. He may march in his army and try to fight Joab's army, kick off a civil war. And if he wins, if his men win the day, he may avoid a war altogether. So a couple of his guys may get hacked up in the process, but he may save many of his countrymen's lives. It's a gamble, but Joab says, yeah, let's see where this goes. Let them arise. Look what happens. Verse 16. Speaking of the 24, and they caught everyone his fellow by the head and thrust his sword in his fellow's side. So they fell down together. Wherefore, that place was called Helkathazram, a slippery place, which is in Gibeon. The purpose of this competition was very simple. We are going to have a competition, and we are going to find out who is best, who has the better warriors. And at the end of this, what did they find? They found that there was absolutely no difference between any of them. They were all equally matched. And this was the end state of Gibeon, the end state of this great competition. Everybody who competed died. Now, the bloodshed from this small skirmish kicks off a whole full-scale battle, full-blown civil war. Armies of Abner crash with Joab's army. But the scriptures record that Joab's army is the victor. He puts Abner and his army on the run. Look what happens. Look at verse 18. And there were three sons of Zariah there, Joab and Abishai and Asahel. And Asahel was as light of foot as a wild roe. And Asahel pursued after Abner, and in going, he turned not to the right hand nor to the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Art thou Asahel? And he answered, I am. And Abner said to him, Turn thee aside to the right hand or to the left, and lay thee hold on one of the young men, and take thee his armor. But Asahel would not turn aside from following of him. And Abner said again to Asahel, Turn thee aside from following me. Wherefore should I smite thee to the ground? How then should I hold up my face to Joab 
thy brother. Now, here we're introduced to the hero of this entire story, this man named Asahel. His name means God appointed or God made. This is Joab's brother, and that makes him David's nephew. And this man's fast. He's fast as a wild roe, fast as a gazelle. That's what the scripture records. And if you look through the First Chronicles account of David's mighty men, he's mentioned there. He's mentioned as a valiant man. He's strong. He's capable. He's battle-tested. And he surveys the scene. He steps out onto the battlefield, and his eyes fall on one man, Abner. What was he thinking? There's the problem. There is one reason that me and my countrymen are hacking each other to bits. There is one reason that the kingdom is not reconciled unto David. There is one problem on this battlefield. It's him right there. And Asahel took off in single-minded purpose to take care of the problem, to put down the problem for good. And he wouldn't be dissuaded. Abner said, turn to the right hand, turn to the left. Go after one of the younger warriors. Kill him, take his armor. Seek your victory, seek your glory with him. Just stop pursuing me. Asahel would not be dissuaded. You're the problem. You have to go down. And Abner, he's very confident. Abner is an old, grizzled warrior. Many battles, very malicious, very violent. And when I tell you his type at the end of this, you'll recognize personally how old and grizzled and experienced he is. Asahel's chasing after Abner. What happens here? Look at verse 23. Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner with the hinder end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib, that the spear came up behind him, and he fell down there and died in that same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died stood still. Now Asahel is faster than Abner. He's gaining ground on him. He's going to take out the problem. Abner sees him coming, and he takes that spear that's in his hand, and he turns it backwards. He is not pointing the sharp end of the spear. He is pointing the blunted end of the spear towards him. And Asahel runs right in that spear. The spear passes directly through him and comes back out the other side. Now, I can only imagine how terrible it would be, how much trauma would be involved being stabbed by the sharp end of a spear. But I want you to consider the end of a mop or broom, that soft, blunted edge going through you all the way through your body and coming out the other side. The amount of trauma and devastation that would cause. That's what that man experienced. And here's what happened when Asahel fell down and died. That battlefield stopped. Everybody who came to the place where Asahel died stopped. Everybody stood in awe that this wonderful, valiant warrior could die. Now, the pause in the battle gives Abner the ability to flee. Joab essentially lets him get away. He thought, we're in a civil war. I don't want to see any more of my countrymen die. I want to let them go, and we'll see what happens tomorrow. And you would think this would be the end of the battle, but this is just the beginning. The scriptures record that there was long war between the house of Saul and David, but it also records this, that David waxed stronger and stronger, and the house of Saul waxed weaker and weaker. David's definitely going to win. God's already set it out. He's God's appointed king. It is just a matter of time. Now, before we get to the end, the conclusion, I want you to see an interaction between Ishbosheth and Abner. I think it's very beneficial. Look in chapter 3, 
And I want you to look at verse 6. This is Abner speaking to Ishbosheth. And it came to pass while there was war between the house of Saul and the house of David that Abner made himself strong for the house of Saul. And Saul had a concubine whose name was Ritzpah, the daughter of Ai. And Ishbosheth said to Abner, Wherefore hast thou gone into unto my father's concubine? Then was Abner very wroth for the words of Ishbosheth, and said, Am I a dog's head, which against Judah do show kindness this day unto the house of Saul thy father? to his brethren and to his friends, and have not delivered thee into the hand of David, that thou chargest me today with a fault concerning this woman? This is the one time in scriptures that it's recorded that Ishbosheth tried to correct Abner. Remember, Ishbosheth, by name at least, is the king. Abner is subordinate to him in name only. Is this how you speak to your king? How dare you hold me accountable? How dare you, you tell me that I have done wrong? Apparently Abner was messing around with one of Saul's former concubines. Ishbosheth didn't like it. He says, look at everything I've done for you. I put you on the throne. I protected your family name. I protected you from David. Who are you to call me into account? Is this how a man talks to his king? It is if he's the king that he's made. But Abner's going to show his hand here. He's going to reveal something to us that he hasn't said up to this point. Look at verse 9. This is Abner speaking to Ishbosheth. He says, so do God to Abner, and more also, except as the Lord hath sworn to David, even so I do to him, to translate the kingdom from the house of Saul and to set up the throne of David over Israel and over Judah, from Dan even to Beersheba, and he could not answer Abner a word again because he feared him. Abner says, that's it. We're losing. I'm switching sides. I'm going to go side with David, and he reveals something, something he has known the entire time. He's known the entire time that David is God's rightful king. He's known it from the very beginning. He's known it this entire time. He went to this thing, this rebellion, eyes wide open, knowing this is God's king. I'm warring against God's king and God himself, and he did it anyways because he did not want to lose control. Now, Abner makes an attempt to align himself with David. And you can read this later on tonight for yourself if you want. But when you read the exchange, I do not detect that Abner is sincere. He doesn't throw himself at David's feet. He doesn't beg for mercy. He doesn't say, David, I'm wrong. You do with me as you see fit. That's not it at all. He tries to bargain. He comes up and he says, listen, I got influence over here in Israel. You want to be king, right? You make a treaty with me, be at peace with me, spare me. I'll use my influence. I'll get you what you want. I'll help you become king. You'll have my cooperation. And David does something that's very out of character for him. He agrees to this, the terms. David thought, being politically savvy, yeah, okay, he's got some cooperation. I need to be king. We need to end this war. Uh, I'll just sweep under car under the carpet everything as Abner has done. The insurrection, the killing of Asahel, I'll just sweep that under the carpet for the sake of having Abner's cooperation in making me king. Now, a thought on that while we're here. If you want to know what God is not like, what he's not like, he's not like what David is doing here. He needs absolutely no man's cooperation to be king. He is king. 
He rules and he reigns, and we're going to talk about that here in a minute. But he needs absolutely no cooperation from any man to be king. One day, every knee is going to bow, and every tongue is going to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the tune of the glory of God the Father. He is king. He doesn't need any man's cooperation in being king. And here's another thing he will not do. He's not going to sweep anything under the carpet. He's not going to allow one sin to go unpunished. This is the truth. Every sin that has ever been committed, never will be committed, has either already been punished in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, or it will be punished in the person of the man who committed that sin. But every sin will be punished that he might maintain his title as a just God and a Savior. If you want to know what God is not like, he is not like what David is doing right here. David may be willing to overlook Abner's indiscretions. But there's somebody who won't. Joab, Asael's brother. Let's look over here in verse 22. And behold, the servants of David and Joab came from pursuing a troop and brought in a great spoil with them. But Abner was not with David in Hebron, for he had sent him away and he was gone in peace. When Joab and all the hosts that was with him were come, they told Joab, saying, Abner the son of Ner came to the king, and he hath sent him away, and he has gone in peace. Then Joab came to the king and said, What hast thou done? Behold, Abner came unto thee. Why is it that thou hast sent him away, and he is quite gone? Thou knowest, Abner the son of Ner, that he came to deceive thee, and to know thy going out, and thy coming in, and to know all that thou doest. Now as a man, Joab's wrong here. He has no right to speak back to his king in this way, but Joab is probably looking out to David for David's best interest here. And he's probably right. Abner probably was a snake in the grass. He was trying to buddy up to David, and as soon as he got the opportunity to usurp David, he was going to. But like I said, David is willing at this point to overlook Abner's indiscretions, his sins, what he has done. But Joab can't because of Asahel. Look at verse 26. And when Joab was come out from David, he sent messengers after Abner, which brought him again from the well of Syrah. But David knew it not. And when Abner was returned to Hebron, Joab took him aside in the gate to speak with him quietly and smote him there under the fifth rib, the same way Asahel died, that he died for the blood of Asahel, his brother. Now, once again, as a man, Joab is wrong here. He is doing this without the king's knowledge and without the king's consent. And if you go on reading, what you find is David actually mourns for Abner, and he curses Joab and his entire house. That being said, this is the single event. This putting down of Abner forever. You know what this leads to? The complete reconciliation of the kingdom under David. All of Israel comes to David and says, you're our king. We've known it the entire time. All hail David, and the entire kingdom is united unto David once Abner has been put down for good. Now, it's a lot of reading, and that's a long story. Where's the gospel in all that? Where's the truth in all that? Question. What's the natural man like? You, me, every man, woman, and child that's ever born in this world by nature, what are we like? We are just like Abner. I hope that in this reading we got three things about Abner. Number one, 
He knew the entire time that David was the rightful king. He rebelled against David. He did not want him to be king. Why? Because he didn't want to lose control. So what did he do? He installed a puppet king. He made himself a king. A weakling, one that could be manipulated, one who would only do what he told him to do, and he said, that's my king. The natural man is absolutely no different all the way through the ages. Now, I'm going to read a little bit out of Romans chapter 1. You can turn there if you want, but I'm just going to read two scriptures. You can listen if you want. The natural man has some understanding of God. He's not completely ignorant to the things of God. This is what Romans 1 verse 20 says. It says, For the invisible things of him, speaking of God, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, clearly, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Every man knows, what does our pastor say every time? That God is. You can look out at the creation right now. We're going to drive home tonight, and we're going to see those stars in the sky. And you consider the vastness of this universe, the fact that you can set your watch by that sun rising, that sun setting. You consider your body right now and the intricacy of your body, the fact that right now your heart is pumping blood and you are breathing and you weren't even conscious of it until I brought it to your memory. All that splendor declares what? Somebody made that. There, in fact, is a Godhead. That means a divine one, a God, somebody who created all this. And if he is of eternal power, power without beginning and power without end, that means he himself is eternal. He always has been and he always will be. And when you look at this creation, you come to this conclusion, somebody very, very wise made this, much wiser than I am. And someone very, very powerful made this much more powerful than I am because I'm not wise enough or powerful enough to make all this. And what do we see in that? That a natural pecking order has been established. There is a God. He is wiser than I am. He is more powerful than I am. Therefore, he's king. He's up here. And where am I? I am underneath him. I am subject to him. And what is the natural man's response to that? It's rejection. He should seek him. We should seek him to find out more about him, to find out what his expectation and his purpose is for us, but we will not. And there's no excuse for that. This is not a matter of misunderstanding. What a matter of misunderstanding with Abner. Abner knew the entire time that David was the rightful king. He had the right information. He just darkened his own counsel. He did not like what he saw. Paul addresses that. Verse 21, he says, Because that when they knew God... They glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Everybody sees this, that there is a natural pecking order. God is. He is king. I am below him. But when a man sees that, his countenance is darkened. His understanding is darkened. He avoids what he sees. His face is turned from what is clearly seen. Now, the question is this. Who darkens that heart? Does the man darken his heart? Does the Lord darken a man's heart? Yes. You remember the Exodus? The Lord's dealing with Pharaoh through Moses. Moses would go to, to Pharaoh. you say, let my people go. That's what the Lord said. The Lord would rain down a plague on that man every time he resisted. And every time Pharaoh noticed, he saw very clearly, there's a pecking order here. God of Israel, he is God. 
He has power over me. He's raining down plagues. And it says interchangeably after those conversations, Pharaoh hardened his heart. And sometimes it'll say, the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. Which one is it? Yes. Pharaoh hardened his heart. He did not like what he saw. He turned his imagination. He turned his face from what could be clearly seen. And the Lord hardened his heart. And I think this is beautiful. I think the first person I ever heard say this was Henry Mahan. It is a, a marvelous statement. What does the Lord need to do to harden a man's heart? Just leave him alone. Just not intervene for that man. That's what grace is. That's what mercy is. It is the Lord intervening on behalf of a person, reaching out with that arm of sovereignty and omnipotence and grabbing him and drawing him to himself, stopping him in his tracks. If the Lord's going to harden a man's heart, this is the only thing he needs to do is just leave that man alone to do what he naturally wants to do. There is absolutely no excuse. And that rebellion, that natural rebellion, it becomes more fierce, it becomes more fiery when the true picture is seen from the scriptures. It's not just that he is more wise than I am. He's omniscient. All knowledge, everything that there is to know is housed in one man. His name is Jesus Christ. All knowledge is housed in him. There is nothing to be known that he does not know because he is the point of contact for everything. Everything flows from him. He is the beginning of all things. It's not just that he is more powerful than I am, but he's sovereign. Nebuchadnezzar saw that. He doeth according to his will in the armies of heaven and amongst the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand. Nobody can stop him, or nobody can say unto him, what doest thou? That's the God we're dealing with. That's the God of the Bible. And that rebellion gets more fierce when a man sees that. Why? Because of the implication. The implication is this, the same one Abner saw. I don't have any control. Salvation is out of my hands. This is not a God that can be manipulated. This is not a God who is scared of me, who I can tell him what to do and he responds to me. I am a sinner in his hands and he can do with me as he sees fit. That's the God of this Bible. That's the God of this book. When a man sees that, he says no. No, that can't be God. And he darkens his imagination. He darkens his heart. And what does he do? What did Abner do? He made himself a king. What does the natural man do? He makes himself a god. And those idols take on different names and different forms all the way through the generations, but they're always the same. They always fit in this exact same box. He wants to help, and he can, but you have to do the thing. There's something that he requires of you. There's something you have to do. He can help, he wants to, but you have to do the thing. He responds to you. And you think of the Jesus Christ that is preached from most pulpits tonight. What are his attributes that men say he has? He loves everybody. He wants to save everybody. You got to do your part. You got to enact your will. You have to some sort of good work to get his attention. He wants to save you. His hands are tied. He just can't. He's a weakling. There's nothing he can do. He makes himself a king because he's comfortable with that God. Now, if a man is going to make himself a king, he's going to make himself a God. What does he have to do next? He's going to make himself a religion. That's what we see at the Pool of Gibeon. That's exactly what's going on there. Abner comes with his forces to the pool. Joab comes with his forces. Abner says, I'm bringing my best. Joab, you bring your best. That's salvation by works. Bring your best. Whatever you want to offer up to God, whatever your best characteristics are, your best works, your will, 
Whatever it is, you bring your best, I'll bring my best. And in man's religion, in salvation by works, they have to change the standard. They can't use God's standard for acceptance. Because what is that standard? Perfect righteousness, perfect holiness, and perfect sinlessness. This is the truth. This is the honest truth. For me to be accepted by God, for him to say to you and me, well done, my good and faithful servant. I have to be sinless as Jesus Christ is sinless. I have to be holy as Jesus Christ is holy. And I have to be righteous as Jesus Christ is righteous. That's the standard. And the natural man says, no, we can't use that standard. Because while the natural man doesn't have any understanding that he is totally depraved, that we are born that way, totally unable, totally sinful, totally depraved, he doesn't have any knowledge of that. Everybody will agree nobody's perfect. I have a conscience. You have a conscience. Our conscience burns when we do wrong. Everybody's felt that burn. Everybody agrees. All natural men agree. Nobody's perfect, so we can't use God's standards. We have to change the standard. Who then becomes the standard? What becomes the standard? I guess whichever one of us makes the best vein showing in the flesh. Whichever one of us looks like he at least has a lot of power over sin and he's growing in holiness and righteousness, I guess we'll use him as the standard. And if a man can be the standard, that means I can be the standard. You can be the standard. Anybody can be the standard. You know, the Lord actually addressed that in his ministry. This is Matthew 5.20. He's speaking to these people. He said, except your righteousness shall exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Now, I don't want to be disrespectful in any way, but that is the understatement of the century. Of course it had to exceed the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. They didn't have any, but why would he make this statement to these people? Because that's the standard they were using. Well, these guys, I mean, you can't even get close to them in the marketplace. They're too holy. They hold you off. They look like they have a lot of power over sin. They're growing in holiness. I guess we'll just use them as the standard. The Lord was saying, that's not the standard. These guys aren't righteous at all. They have no righteousness. The righteousness of Jesus Christ is the only thing I'll accept. That's it. That's the only one. But if we have to change the standard and a man can be a standard, that means you can be the standard and I can be the standard. And that means we're in a competition. Just like the pool of Gibeon. And what was the purpose of that competition? We're going to compete. We're going to hack each other to bits. And we're going to find out who's stronger, who's better, who's got more power. We'll compete. You bring your best. I'll bring my best. We'll find out who's more pleasing to God, and we'll find out one day who's going to have the bigger crown and glory and who will have the bigger mansion and who will be whose servant in the kingdom of heaven, just hacking each other to bits. And here's what this religion does not produce. It doesn't produce any salvation. It doesn't produce any worship of God. This is the other thing it doesn't produce. It doesn't produce any brotherly love whatsoever. No care and concern for your brother. No gracious attitude. No merciful character. Why? Why? What does it produce? Hate and maliciousness to the guy sitting next to you because you're in a competition. And the whole time you're just hoping he falls so that you look better by comparison. That's that religion. What was the purpose of Gibeon? We're going to compete and we're going to find out who's better. What did they find? At the end of that competition, 24 men went into that ring. Nobody came out. What did they find as far as who was better? They were all the same. And one day, everybody's going to find this out. If the Lord saves us here, we're going to know it right now. One day, everybody's going to know this. Amongst men, there's no difference. There's no reason to compete. We can't compete. This is what Paul said. 
Romans 3.10, he says, As is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none that understandeth, there is none that seeketh after God. They are all gone out of the way, they are together become unprofitable. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. Not one. Don't enter into this competition you don't have anything to fight with. You don't have any strength. Everybody's the same. Claire, you said that. There's no difference between men. That's the truth. In the eyes of God, there is no difference between any man. We're all sinners. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and that continually. You can't take that two ways. That's what he sees. That's the truth about all of us. And what was the end state of Gibeon? What happened at that pool? Everybody who competed died. And this is the warning of this book. This exposes man's lie. This is the warning. If you come to God on these grounds, you bring your best. You want to enter this great competition. This is your end state. You will die at the hand of God himself. No salvation in that religion. Now, if that's man and that's man's lie, what's the truth? The truth is Asahel. Asahel means God appointed or God made. This is God's appointed prophet, priest, and king, Jesus Christ. That's who Asahel represents. I hope there's three things you got about Asahel. He was a man of single-minded purpose, and he wouldn't be dissuaded from that purpose. Abner said, turn to the left hand or to the right. Just leave me alone. Asahel, no, you're going down. He took the battlefield. He spied out the problem. And he said, that problem is going away. And I want you to listen to this. I thought this was glorious when I saw it. Maybe you'll enjoy it too. The only reason that Abner is finally put down forever and the entire kingdom is reconciled unto David is why? Because Asahel died. David was going to let Abner go. But the blood of Asahel cried to Joab and he could not let him go. The reason Abner is put down forever and the entire kingdom is reconciled unto David, there is just one reason. It's because Asahel died. Our Lord is just like Asahel. He's a beautiful type right here, the Lord Jesus Christ. He's a man of single-minded purpose. God appointed him, appointed him to a body. God became flesh and he dwelt among us made of a woman, made under the law. And he lived 33 years, and he lived in a single-minded purpose. He came here with one purpose, just one. And we don't have to guess what that was. He told his mom when he was 12 years old. She came looking for him. She said, where'd you go? Where'd you go? Why would you do this to your father and me? This is what she said. He said to her, how is it that ye sought me? This was God speaking to her, not a 12-year-old boy. How is it ye sought me? You don't seek me, Mom. I seek you. That's how this works. But this is what he said. Wish ye not that I must be about my father's business. He was a man of single-minded purpose his entire life, 33 years doing one thing and one thing only, his father's business. And we don't have to wonder what that business was. He tells us in John six thirty-nine, And this is the father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me, that I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again, At the last day, he was simply reciting what happened in that covenant of grace that took place before not one pillar of this world was ever built. That's where the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, they communed with themselves 
Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, who will go for us? Who will be champion? And Christ said, I'll go. Send me. And Father said, this is the task. I have a people. I love a particular people. You love a particular people. The Holy Spirit, he loves a particular people. Been with us for the generations. And I'm putting them in the one place of safety. I'm putting them in the rock, in the cleft of the rock, while I pass over. He handed them to Christ. Where can they maintain? Where can I put them that they will be safe throughout the eternities? There's only one place. Send me. Send I. I'm your champion. And he gave them to Christ. And he came to this earth with a single-minded purpose to save everybody his father gave him. And he did exactly what his father sent him to do. He took the battlefield, walked onto the battlefield, and he spied out the problem. What was his people's problem? This is the scripture, Isaiah 59, 2. But your iniquities have separated between you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you that he will not hear. What was the problem? What was the wedge that kept the father from his people? There was a wedge driven there. What was that problem? It was Abner. It was our sin. God can have absolutely nothing to do with sin. And Christ took the battlefield. He said, it has to be taken away. It must go. And you think of those 33 years, how much discouragement he saw along the way. Satan tempted him for 40 days and 40 nights. He was just trying to find something to work with. Is there anything in him that I can work with? And you know what? He couldn't find one thing. Not a thing. He just left him alone after 40 days because this was a holy and perfect and righteous man that did no sin and knew no sin, and there was nothing there to work with. And he tried a little while later with Peter. He inhabited the body of Peter after the Lord told the disciples that he would die and that he would be raised again on the third day. And this is what Peter said. He said, be it far from thee, Lord. This shall not be unto thee. Satan said, I'll try again. Maybe I can use flattery. Maybe there's some pride in there I could work with. This is how he responded. Get thee behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but then be of men. Nobody down here is faithful to my father, but I'm going to be faithful to my father. I'm going to do what my father sent me to do. And I think the greatest discouragement came at Gethsemane. Gethsemane, he took that cup, and he saw what was in the cup. He saw the sins of his people, and he saw what he would have to become. He would have to be made those sins and stand in that sin and that shame before his father. And he sweat great drops of blood, and he said this, If thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, nevertheless, Although this heaviness is upon me, nevertheless, thy will be done and not my will. I'm going to do exactly what my father sent me here to do. And he did just that. How can Asahel be the savior, the hero, the champion of this story? Asahel died exactly. For he hath made him sin for us that knew no sin that we might be made the very righteousness of God in him. He went to that cross bearing the sins of his people. The wrath of God came down upon him. You remember what happened in the story? That spear, that blunted edge of that spear, went through Asahel and went all the way out and continued out, and it was gone. It was gone. What is the effect of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ for his people? Don't take my word for it. Listen to this. 
Psalm 103.12, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. In immeasurable distance, what did the death of Christ do? It removed the sins and the transgressions of his people far away. They're gone, never to be seen again. 1 John 4.10, Here in his love, not that we love God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation, the sin-removing sacrifice for us. What did it do? His death removed the sin. Finally this, Romans 5.10, For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. When Asahel died and Abner was put down, what happened to the kingdom? Completely reconciled under David. This is what the death of the Lord Jesus Christ did for his people. It removed the wedge and it reconciled all God's people back to the Father. That means they are eternally secure. Nothing lacking, nothing needed from them. Eternal redemption has been accomplished. Things couldn't be any better for these people. Am I one of them? It's a great question, right? Look back in your text, 2 Samuel 2, verse 23. 2 Samuel 2, 23. Howbeit he refused to turn aside. Wherefore Abner with the hinder end of the spear smote him under the fifth rib that the spear came out behind him. And he fell down there and died in the same place. And it came to pass that as many as came to the place where Asahel fell down and died, what did they do? They stood still. Now when I'm brought to this place, and when the Lord brings his people, these people whom he died for, to this place, to this message, the only way a man can be saved, it's only for this one reason, is if Christ bore that man's sins in his body, suffered the wrath of God for him, and died for him, and put them away. That's the only thing God will accept. And that is the only thing, that's the only way a man can be saved. When I'm brought here, I stand still there. I've got no place else to go. The gods of this world, those impotent weaklings, they're not going to do me any good. It's going to take a sovereign to save somebody like me. And that great competition is not going to give me, do me any good. I can't compete. I don't have any strength. I don't have any ability. I can't compete. I've got absolutely nothing to bring to the table. The only thing I have, this is my only hope, this is it, is that Jesus Christ died for me and he put away my sins and he reconciled me to God. That's my only hope of getting in. I don't know if I'm elect. I don't know about all these other things. All I know is the only way I will be saved is if Christ died for me. I stand still there, and I cannot move. I don't want to move. This is all I have. And, folks, that is called faith. That is the very evidence that he died for you. Now, that is a very interesting story, isn't it? The greater Asahel is beautiful. I'll leave you there.